Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. Thank you for that, Matthew 13. Matthew 13. I had my pre-conference dream last night. Stood before you, opened my notes, and there was a child's coloring book. <laughs> Hallelujah. Conferences apparently are more stressful than I know. Hallelujah. During the Second World War, the jungles in the Pacific were so thick that they posed a particular threat to our troops as they marched on patrol. It was not uncommon for a Japanese soldier to sneak on to the end of the line and start working his way up the line, slitting people's throats. And so as they walked through particularly dense foliage, they adapted the practice of passing a password back down the line. They would say, Lollapalooza. And uh, so you would say, Lollapalooza. The guy in front of you would say, Lollapalooza. You'd Lollapalooza. If the guy behind you said, Rarapalooza, you knew you were in trouble. This is, <laughs> this is a modern-day equivalent of the biblical shibboleth. Shibboleth was the password that the Gileadites used, uh, or the, uh, uh, yeah, the Gileadites used at the fords of the Jordan to test for Ephraimites. And if the Ephraimite could not say shibboleth, they killed them on the spot. 42,000 people died that day. It would be a very bad day to have a speech impediment. <laughs> I want to get it right. I want to talk about the infiltration of the church by tares this morning. And it would be wonderful if we could just make people say the right word. And if it, they couldn't say it, we could kill them. <laughs> but life is more complicated than that. And wheat and tares are more complicated than that. And so we need to take some time thinking about it. I believe it's probably one of the great challenges to our churches and to our fellowship today is the issue of carnal Christians and how we must deal with them. And so I want to think about this with you for a bit this morning out of Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat 
into my barn. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray this morning that your anointing will rest upon it, and you will say uh, to our hearts that which you want to say. I pray, God, for a transcendence uh, beyond anything I can do. Uh, I'm asking, God, for your presence, your dominion uh, in this uh, congregation and in this pulpit this morning. Uh, I'm praying it in Jesus' name. Uh, And everyone said, uh, amen. Now, one would like to think that the church is a nice, safe sanctuary where we don't have to deal with the world, sort of like heaven where we are promised that the cowardly, the unbelieving, uh, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, uh, and all liars are left outside the gate. One would like to think uh, that that holds true for the church, but unfortunately, uh, both experience and the Bible quickly disabuse us of that fantasy. You don't have to be saved very long to realize uh, that uh, not everybody at church is there for the same reason. And many times you'll be fighting in the trenches alongside your brother and you'll look over at him and he'll say, Jesus came to give rife and that abundantly and you know you're in trouble. <laughs> say, this one doesn't sound like a Christian. I'm in trouble. And it's not my desire this morning to sow seeds of suspicion, but we have to realize that Jesus is speaking about the nature of the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is such that there will be people in the kingdom that are not there because they love God. They are not there with good intention. They are tares sown by the enemy. They are there to do damage. Tares is a very interesting word. It's a reference to a weed called the bearded darnel, which lends credence to our no-beard doctrine in this fellowship. (laughs) These weeds resemble wheat so closely that even experienced farmers have a very tough time sorting it out. The Hebrew word for tares is the word zunum, And it it is translated in our New Testament in Greek by the word zizanion. And that actually in both Hebrew and Greek means bastard wheat. It relates to a word zana, which is to commit fornication. And so there is a moral connotation to this. Barclay says this, the popular story is that the tares took their origin in the time of wickedness, which preceded the flood... For at that time, the whole creation, men, animals, and plants, all went astray and committed fornication and brought forth contrary to nature. In their early stages, the wheat and the tares so closely resembled each other that the popular idea was that the tares were a kind of wheat which had gone wrong. Wheat which had gone wrong. Bear that thought in mind. Adam Clark says the words zanya, which is here translated tares and which should rather be translated bastard or degenerate wheat, is a Chaldee word, and its meaning must be sought in the rabbinical writers. In a treatise in the Mishnah called Kalayim, which treats expressly on different kinds of seeds, the words zunim and zunin is used for bastard or degenerate wheat, 
And get this, that which was wholly a right seed in the beginning, but afterwards became degenerate. It was wholly a right seed in the beginning, but it morphed. It became degenerate with the passage of time. So when Jesus told the parable uh, of the wheat and tares, the hearer would immediately recognize the tear as a as originally good seed that had gone bad. And when the, the uh, servants asked the master uh, in the text, didn't you sow good wheat? This would reinforce in their mind this thinking. This was good wheat at one time. This was wheat that uh, became morally bent. It's connected with the thought of fornication. It's connected with the thought uh, of a moral breakdown. Uh, it's connected with the thought of a perverting of something that was originally good but has become twisted. It's good seed gone bad. The bad news is that always and everywhere in the kingdom of God, there will be a, if you'll allow me the pun, a seedy element in the church. There will be an element in the church that is contrary to everything that we believe. Uh, there, is a, there will be an element of the church that perhaps uh, had auspicious beginnings, uh, that perhaps uh, was originally uh, genuine in faith, uh, but through the years uh, it has morphed into something quite different, uh, something uh, actually quite terrible to ponder. Uh, it has become a tool of the enemy. It has become something profane uh, and something morally twisted. All of us that are dealing with churches of any age have watched this process take place in older saints who begin to lose their heart for the things of God, who over time become more and more enamored with the things of the world, more and more distracted by their own ambitions, by their own desires, uh, by their own lack of zeal, by their own lack of consecration. Uh, little by little, their lives begin to degenerate. Good seed uh, begins to go bad. In Ezekiel 34, we have a picture of this. I actually preached a sermon on this some time ago, but the, uh, the passage is so fitting, I'm using it again. It says in uh, Ezekiel 34, 17 to 21, As for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture? And to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet. And they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. Because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. This is the picture uh, of old uh, goats in the congregation who have gotten fat on the blessings of God. They've eaten the pasture. They've drunk the clear waters of revival. And then they've turned around and fouled those clear waters and have trampled the remaining grass for sheep to come. 
They butt the young ones. They ram the young ones. They've become obstinate. They've become stubborn. They've become arrogant. They've become aggressive. These are not just just people that decided to stay home from church on Sunday and watch TV. We're talking about something where there's a genuine peril. There's a problem here. Their carnality is aggressive. You have to mark this down. Their carnality is aggressive because many people who become carnal in their Christianity are very convicted and very uncomfortable with their carnality. And so the more people that they can pull into their camp, the better they feel about their carnality. And so their carnality is aggressive and they scatter abroad. There is a peril that is involved in this degenerate wheat. There is a peril in the tear. We see good seed gone bad in older saints. We see good seed gone bad in church kids. I was very nervous when Dr. Cluck began on this strange creature thought. He began to trample my grass and foul my water. (laughs) I always hate it when you get up and your sermon is shredded. Fortunately, he left me enough to, uh, to take a few swipes. And uh, good seed gone bad is church kids who God, you know, God says, I like my couples to stay married so they will raise up to me a godly offspring. And I love the offspring of Christian parents. I love the offspring of those who have given their life to me. But you know what? Sometimes good seed goes bad. And that seed which we had high hopes for uh, and believed that God could move in their lives, uh, unfortunately, uh, they uh, become tares over the passage of time. 1 Samuel 2.12, the familiar story of Eli. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. The sons of Eli were the future priests of Israel. The sons of Eli were people of destiny. They were young people who God had his hand upon, uh, but they were immoral They were greedy, they were profane, they loved the things of the world, they were full of contempt and mockery for the people of God. And 1 Samuel 2.17 says, Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Because of these men's attitudes, because of the things they were bringing with them into the congregation, the immorality, the attitude, the contempt, over a period of time, the people of God looked at these young men and said, you know what, this is jacked up. I'm not even going to offer to the Lord anymore. I'm not interested in the things of God if this is the best we can do. And their cynicism and their breakdown, their degeneracy, Degeneration uh, had a far-reaching impact. It caused problems. It was a peril uh, to believers, to people sincere in the faith. The problem with tares is there's a great danger in tares. Listen to Hosea in chapter Hosea, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 9. It says, As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely... They commit lewdness. Shechem was a city of refuge. It was a place where God had said, if you commit manslaughter, if you sin, if there's a failure of some kind, uh, 
you can, uh, you can escape the judgment uh, and the death of your mistake by fleeing uh, to a city of refuge. This is a picture of Christ and redemption. It is a picture of God being able to restore uh, uh, people that have fallen, that have made terrible errors, uh, that have uh, produced great heartache. Uh, There's still a place of redemption. There's still a place of refuge uh, that we can go to. Uh, We can find refuge in Jesus Christ. We can find refuge in Shechem. But this text says that as these uh, sinners, as these uh, repentant individuals, uh, desperate for redemption, desperate for forgiveness, uh, fled to the city of Shechem, they were ambushed on the way and killed before they could ever get into the city. And the Bible says that the ones who were doing the killing were the priests. The priests of God, the very ones who should have been speaking words of hope and redemption and showing them the way to Shechem, were killing them on the way to Shechem. I have watched this through the years. As people come into our church desperate for a sanctuary, only to find that in the church it ain't any different than outside of the church. That they're ambushed by the priests of God. God help us. The phrase company of priests in that verse literally refers to oxen that are yoked together. And what it says is that the priests with one shoulder ambushed and murdered people on their way to church. With one shoulder. Isn't it interesting the way carnal people run in packs? Isn't it interesting how all uh, the church kids that start getting funky, they all start hanging together. And they all start copping the same attitude, and they all start acting the same way, and they all end up in the same arenas of sin. And they draw together, and they hunt the weak, and they seek to kill those that are on their way to Shechem. There's a great peril that is posed by the terrors, and we're going to look at that a little bit more in just a moment. I want you to realize that there are profound issues that we are talking about this morning. So knowing that this element exists, knowing that the kingdom of God is such, and that no church is exempt of tares, I want to address wheat and tares here this morning. And I want to begin with tares. I want to speak to tares. And some of you are going, wait, 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 Pastor Lamb, wait. We're at a conference. There are no tares here. Why would tares come to conference? I don't know. Why did tares come to church? Find a husband. Find a wife. We all know tares are easy, man. I don't know. Maybe they're here to scratch a religious itch. Maybe they're here because their parents made them come. Maybe they're here to wreck a hotel room. I don't know. I don't know why they're here, but they're here. Maybe they came to socialize with other tares. How's things in the tear kingdom over in Vegas? Oh, pretty good, man. How are the tares coming along in Prescott? Oh, man, we're rocking. I don't know why tares come. They come. Maybe they're actually motivated by demonic spirits. I don't know. I don't know, but there are tares here. 
And so I want to speak to the tares here. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say rah-rah perusa. God knows who you are. Also, you can take this little word back to the tares at home. I want to speak to you, tares. I want to quote Paul first because he says it so powerfully and so wonderfully in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, second edition, because it seems to capture the spirit. He says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we beg, come back to God. I speak to you, Ter, for Christ, the Son of the living God, and he begs you this morning, come back to God. Do not remain bastard wheat. Do not remain the peril to the kingdom that you have become. Do not sit there in your carnality. I beg you, repent. I beg you, for the sake of your own soul, and because the love of God would reach out to you this morning and would implore you, please come back to God. Stop living the way you're living. Stop destroying your faith and the faith of everyone around you because you just don't want to do it. Because you just don't want to pay a price. You don't want to be a Christian. You don't want to live that way. God is begging you this morning, come back, get saved, get your heart right, stop playing the game. We beg you to repent. Jesus is coming. I believe Pastor Campo's sermon. I believe Jesus is coming. You picked a fine time to leave him, Lucille. This is not the time to be screwing around. This is not the time to be pretending to be a Christian. I saw that video that Pastor Vickery talked about. It's very powerful, very well done. I can imagine uh, some backslidden young pipsqueak sitting in front of his computer and turning that one on on YouTube, uh, hoping he could see a little, uh, uh, a little uh, naked flesh, and all of a sudden, here's the rapture man right up in his face. That'll make you repent if you have a brain. Some tears have no brain. But Jesus is coming back. You say, ah, oh, they've been saying that for years. Just a scare tactic. Okay, let's forget the rapture. Jesus is coming back for you. You're not living forever. You might not make it off the, off the tent grounds today. Who knows? One of those lamps might fall on your head. <laughs> and then everybody here would know. Sure do. One way or the other, you are one heartbeat away from standing before God. One way or the other, your games are going to come to an abrupt halt. And we beg you, we beg you for Christ himself. Stop! Stop living this way. 
Give your life to Jesus today, right now. At the altar call that I'm going to pull, come down to this altar, say, God, I have jacked this whole thing up. Forgive me. I am going to live for you from this day forward. I beg you to do that. I beg you. I plead with you. If I could slit my wrists and somehow that would do it, I would do it. But Jesus' blood has already been poured out and nothing can be added to it. Take advantage of that blood this morning and repent. Failing that, I want you to see that very clearly in every text that I have quoted this morning, there is the promise of judgment. In our text, Jesus says, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them. That's a sobering proposition. Bind them together to burn them. I don't care how long they've been in church. Bind them together because we're going to burn them. In the text, in the scripture in Ezekiel 34, God started out that text by saying, I will judge between sheep and sheep. Then he concludes his discussion of these goats uh, by repeating himself, lest any particularly stupid sheep should have missed the message. Because you have pushed with side and shoulder, uh, butted all the weak ones with your horns, scattered them abroad, therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. There's a great promise here to all of us who want to live for God. God says, I'm not going to let this carnal Christianity go on messing with you. I'm going to protect my sheep. I am going to judge between sheep and sheep. I am going to cease their functioning so that my sheep will no longer be their prey. They will no longer be a peril. I am going to take them out so they are no longer a peril to my sheep. Hosea passage that I quoted earlier, if you continue to read through all of, the, all of the exposure of God, he gets to the end of exposing the apostate heart of these people, and he says, uh, their princes will fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. He says, I'm going to get their ringleaders, I'm going to get the little, the little guy in the middle who's got all his little neophytes, and they're all running around snickering and doing all the bad stuff, I'm going to get the ringleader. I'm going to get the guy in the middle of that little pack. I'm going to make a particular example of him. I'm going to disembowel him. I'm going to get him. Okay? This isn't Pastor Lamb speaking. This is God speaking through Hosea. I'm going to get their princes. I'm going to get their leaders. I'm going to get them. Sons of Eli. God got them. Killed them deader than a hammer. And he warned Eli, and he warned them, and he warned all involved... He said, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your, heart, of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. And they did. Amen. You catching this? You need to understand, you need to mark this down. The church is God's bride. And he will not allow you to continue to drag her white wedding garments through the muck and the mire of your carnality. There comes a point where he's going to say, you know what, you've messed with my bride enough. I am going to remove you. I am going to take care of you. 
When God warns, he always warns with the intention of drawing people to repentance. That's why he warns. If God didn't want you to repent, he'd just kill you flat out. He wouldn't warn you. He wouldn't say, look out, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm going to get you. You better shape up. You better shape up. He would just come up behind you and squash you like a bug. How many of you know God can do that? How many of you know Ananias and Sapphira went to church that day ready to sing the songs of Zion? Ready to praise the Lord. Oh, we're going to church. We're going to do our thing. They had no idea that God was going to kill them right there, right there. God is not done with killing people. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. See, all carnal people suffer from the same delusion. Hosea 7.2 describes that delusion. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now, now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. See, all carnal people think they're getting away with it. They've been coming to church carnal for years. They've been dancing the dance, singing the song for years. No judgment has fallen. They haven't been thrown out. Everybody thinks they're good. Or at least everybody tolerates them. They're okay. They're going to make it. God says, oh, no, no, no. Your problem is you think I'm not watching. Your problem is you don't think I'm involved in my church. Your problem is you don't think that this is real. You think this is just religion because that's all it is to you. But I'm the living God. And what you're doing is getting up in my face. What you're doing is before me, and I will remember it. So you need to mark this down, tares. Hear the plea of God. Repent while you are still able, because I assure you if you don't, there will come a time when repentance is beyond you. And God's judgment will be swift and painful. I want to speak to wheat this morning. Wheat obviously means sincere Christians. I also want to speak to the servants of the field. They all ultimately come together under the heading of wheat. 
This parable would seem to prescribe any action on our part at all. By the way, these uh, cups were clean and uh, filled with fresh water. So I was told. I didn't want you to think I didn't care. Purity matters. This parable would seem to say, look, the tares are there. There's nothing you can do about it. Leave them alone. You can do damage if you try to assault them. You can do damage trying to deal with them. You'll kill innocent wheat in the process. And there is certainly that wise warning in this parable. Certainly Jesus is warning us that there are inherent dangers of becoming uh, um, tear pullers. There are inherent dangers to becoming uh, uh, Jesus Gestapo. Where you're going to fix everything that's wrong in the church and you're going to straighten out everybody that's carnal. There is a danger of quenching burning uh, flax or smoking flax and of breaking bruised reeds. Or in other words, the danger of killing off the wounded, something Jesus himself said, I will not do. If there's hope, if there's any life left in it, I'm not going to snuff it out. And so there is the danger of killing something that perhaps could be healed. There is the possibility that if good wheat can degenerate into a tear, then maybe by the grace of God, a tear can be reformed into good wheat. That by the grace of God, somehow something that has gotten all twisted can become untwisted. When I was a child and I used to get knots in my shoelaces, I would always run to my mother and say, you got to untie this. I can't get into my sneakers. They're already outside playing and I got to get a move on. Untie my knots. God is the master at untying knots. He is the master of fixing things that we have broken. And there is a possibility that tares can be restored to being wheat. There is the danger of flawed judgment on our part. How many of you understand you're not God? Good, I'm glad three or four of you do. The rest of you, I have a revelation for you this morning. You're not God. I'll take it a step further. You're a human. I'll take it a step further. Humans can't find their butt with two hands and a mirror. You don't know Jack. Neither do I. I appreciate what Brother Wilson said. I'm still trying to figure it out. We don't have all the information. Our judgment is not always perfect. We don't have all the facts, and there is the danger that we might act without the mind of Christ. There is the danger that if we live with too heavy a hand as a pastor, we actually do damage to the culture of the church. Pastors lead by example and by prayer, not by coercion and abuse. And just because you have the power of life and death doesn't mean you are called to exercise that all the time. And so that's why Jesus cautions us in this parable. There are inherent dangers and the reality of wheat and tares, the reality that many times tares do appear very much like wheat, that sometimes you can't even tell them apart. There is the, the very uh, necessary caution that all of us need to exercise. The church ultimately is a place of grace and redemption. 
working with damaged goods, uh, helping people in various stages of their spirituality, uh, helping them uh, to grow in the things of God. And many of us, uh, uh, you know, our carnality falls off little by little as we grow in the Lord. Amen? And so that's what the church is about. It's not about execution. It's about redemption. The worst thing you can do is create a graceless, pharisaical, watchdog culture in your church. Everybody's watching everybody. Everybody's reporting on everybody. Everybody's suspicious of everybody. We don't say hello anymore. We say Lollapalooza. We want to know what side you're on, man. So there's a danger. There's a great danger, a horrifying reality when a pastor goes crazy with power and he starts executing anyone who doesn't agree with him. It's not what we're talking about. So you have to be careful. Jesus told this parable specifically to keep us from becoming pharisaical, judgmental, unredemptive, and ungracious. But, having said that, this is not the only scripture in the Bible that deals with carnality. This is not the only scripture in the Bible that addresses tares. I mentioned and made a point of stressing the peril that tares do represent. The peril to a congregation, the peril to good Christians, and there comes a point when it becomes obvious that certain carnal elements in our churches have no intention of repenting, and furthermore are now beginning to pose a danger and a threat to people in the church. It is at that point that other scriptures kick in. It is at that point that you and I have an obligation to begin to judge tares. It is at that point that we have to sometimes take action. A tear may be hard to identify, but a pot plant stands out in a wheat field. And at that point, it's time to burn it, not in a pipe. It has to be dealt with. This is when scriptures like 1 Corinthians 5 come to bear. Listen to what Paul writes, verses 11 to 13. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. We're talking about tares. We're talking about good Christians who are sexually immoral or covetous. Covetous. Paul, we all have no problem with 1 Corinthians 5 when it comes to throwing out fornicators. But what do you do with covetous? What do you do with somebody who never tithes? I don't know. I don't know. Don't quote me. Lamb said throw them out. I did not. I didn't say that. I'm not sure. All I want to do is get you thinking. This is dangerous. I didn't want to preach this. I told God for the last two months coming up to conference, he gave me about a month. It's about a month ago, he st- this started gelling, and again and again, I said, I don't want to preach that. I don't want to preach that. I came right down the wire. I don't have anything to preach. God's not telling me what to preach. I don't have anything to preach. It's very bad when you start getting down the last week or so before conference, your brother starts saying, so you, you, you're all done with your conference sermon? No, I don't know what I'm supposed to preach. I don't know what I'm preaching. God never did give me anything else. 
So you get what he gave me. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, a little pipsqueak mocker sitting in the third row, a drunkard, an extortioner. I've never met an extortioner. They must have been doing a major business in Paul's days because he mentions them many times, but I haven't met one yet, unless you include politicians. And so uh, an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul is talking about taking some very serious action. I don't believe that everybody... Let me, let me back up and say this. I don't believe you have to throw every, every non-tither out of your church. But I do believe you have to throw out the guy who's walking around telling people that tithing is not biblical. I believe you need to throw him out on his ear and not let him back in until he repents publicly and, and writes you a big check. I had to throw a church kid out a couple weeks ago who uh, had a habit of showing up drunk. Good church kid. Not a good church kid. A wretched terror. But a church kid who's been coming for years and years and years, I threw him out because he kept showing up drunk. And I finally told him one night, I said, if you show up here drunk one more time, you're out. So the next time he shows up, not, does he, not only does he show up drunk, but he's got a new convert with him who he's had out behind the church with him. I met him at the door, and I said, don't ever set foot back in here. Now, that may make me a very unpopular man, but the issue is protecting my church. The issue is protecting my sheep from predators, and there comes a point when the tear principle is overridden by the Corinthian principle, where grace and kindness, which I have shown to this young man for the last year, was not producing the desired effect. So now, hard bludgeoning is the only means left to me. <laughs> One of my favorite songs is, I only use my guns when kindness fails. <laughs> Howard Snyder, in his book, The Radical Wesley, says in 1748, John Wesley reduced the Bristol Society from 900 to 730. How would you like to send in that gold sheet? Pastor Mitchell, 900, 730. Lamb, what did you do? I threw them all out! <laughs> While on other occasions he found no expulsions were necessary. In port cities, he often had to exclude some for smuggling and found with time that this discipline bore fruit in reduced smuggling in the area. There you go. Proof is in the pudding. From one society, his societies were his churches in various areas, he expelled 64 persons in one whack. Two for cursing. Two for habitual Sabbath breaking. He had a bad habit of not showing up to church, so he threw them out. 
17 for drunkenness, two for selling liquor, three for quarreling. There goes half our church. One for wife beating, three for habitual lying, four for evil speaking, one for idleness, and 29 for lightness and carelessness. Lightness and carelessness. Man, if we got down to paring it down that thin, I'd have to throw myself out on some days. Lamb, you're too light and you're too careless. You're out. Get out of here. Run. Don't come back. <laughs> uh, God help us. See, why on earth was Wesley so draconian? Well, I don't know, but one thing they did not accuse his groups of was a lack of holiness. His Methodist groups were known for their holiness. Ecclesiastes 9.18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. God warns of impending judgment. 1 Timothy 5.20, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. Sometimes God will use the pastor to execute his judgment and to pull up the tares. Sometimes you have to step in and take action, and if you don't, ultimately you become a hireling. John 10, 12 to 14, a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, in other words, he's not Jesus, he's an under-shepherd, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them, the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. See, there is an indictment, pastor, upon you uh, when you refuse to protect your sheep. There is a uh, reflection on the very heart of the man. Why would a hireling flee? Why wouldn't he take care of the issues? Uh, well, maybe it's because uh, he'd lose some uh, tithing families if he dealt with it. Maybe it's because uh, his numbers would go down if he dealt with it. Maybe it's because he himself is so morally compromised that he has a hard time judging. Maybe it's because it's his kid and he won't judge it. Or maybe he wants to judge it, but mama won't let him. You know about she bears. The parable actually implies that a certain blame for the existence of tares lies with us because we were sleeping. The enemy did this while we were sleeping, while we weren't being vigilant, while we weren't being careful about the flock, when we weren't being careful about the field. That's when things get sloppy. We're not being careful, exercising. We servants are asleep. Perhaps if these servants had posted a watch, perhaps if they'd been a little more concerned about the welfare of the field, the tares never would have been sown. There is a certain responsibility on our part when tares are recognized that we have to deal with them. The time, Peter says, has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. I believe that time is here. 
I believe it's time to judge in the house of God. I fear legalism, but I also fear the indulgence of carnality. And judgment has to begin with the house of God. And I'm not suggesting we start throwing everyone out. There are other means. And the pastor is not the only person that should get involved in this. Parents, it would do us a world of good if you would rein in your little demon-possessed church kid. Put him on a short lease. Why are you letting him sit with his carnal buddies? Why are you letting her sit with all of the Britney Spears wannabes? Why don't you say, no, you're coming to church and you're sitting with me. Let them pout. Let them throw a fit. Hit them with a brick. Don't let your kids wander around the parking lot. Don't let them be wandering around the church. Don't let them go to the bathroom. You're 16. You knew before we went to church you had to pee. Should have peed at home. Now you're going to sit there until your eyes turn yellow, but you're not getting up. Take their cell phones away from them so they're not sitting there texting. Make them sit and listen to a sermon. They're old enough. They can do it. My dad used to smack me upside the head in Catholic church. This guy's up there going, Omni bomni biscum scroll to the biscum. I don't know what he's saying. I don't have a clue what he's saying. What do you think a kid's going to do when an idiot is up there rattling off in Latin? He's going to get distracted. My dad reached over and flicked my ear. He had this ability to inflict pain in my foot by flicking my ear. I could feel pain through every portion of my body. Practice the technique. Take your child home and practice the technique. Come here. your daughters to put some clothes on. Tell your son to pull up his pants and turn his hat around. And lose the gangsta guard. You wouldn't know a gangster if he shot you. your friends live that way? Why don't you front them on it? Why don't you go up to your friend and say, you're an idiot? And you know what? I am not interested in hanging with you until you shape up. You act like the heathen. You are an idiot. You got a foul mouth and a foul mind. I don't even want to mess with you until you get it straight. Don't even come around. Don't call. As far as I'm concerned, you're a complete loser. I might get their attention. Hello. Oh, what about grace? We're past that. We're dealing with tears now. We'll come back to grace someday. Next sermon. Later for this stinking omerta mafia code of silence. I'm not going to say anything, you know. Uh, then they'll think I'm a, I'm a, a dweeb or a snitch or a, or a rat. Why do you care what they think? They're brain dead anyhow. 
They don't think. If you have to, rat them out. Don't let them fornicate. Don't let them sell drugs in your church. Don't let them live that way. Front them on it. Friends don't let friends sin. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Wouldn't you want someone to save you from death? Wouldn't you want someone to push you out of the way and preserve your life? Then do it for your friends. Because if you turn them from the error of their ways, it's the only hope they have. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Expose them. Yank the sheets. Say, that's it. You're not living that way anymore. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. We have to start dealing with carnality in our churches. We have to. We don't have an option. We have to deal with the carnality of our churches because Jesus is still in the business of removing candlesticks. And if we do not deal with the carnality in our church, give it a few years and we will be no more remembered than Thyatira, Laodicea, Pergamos, Sardis, I've been to every one of those sites. All that's left is a few stones. In some places, there aren't even any stones left. It's gone. It's gone. You think the Potter's House Fellowship is above being gone? We could be history that fast. We could disappear from the face of the earth. Uh, Twenty years from now, they could drive by and go, isn't that where there used to be a big tent? But what happens, they all went insane, uh, they turned into a bunch of carnal freaks, uh, and they lost everything. It's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. I would like every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here this morning, and you are a tear, you are good seed gone bad, you are an old saint who's lost your first love. You are a church kid who could care less about the things of God. I beg you for Jesus himself. Repent. If that's you, raise your hand right now. All over this building, I see this hand. Others, I see this hand. I see this hand. Others, 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 others, tears, I beg you. I see this hand. I beg you. I stand here for the person of Jesus and I beg you, come back to God. Raise your hand. Put your hand up and hold it there. I see this hand. Others. Old saint. Young church kid. Raise your hand. I see this hand. Others. I see that hand. Others. I see that hand. Others. Respond right now. Don't sit out there and go, oh man, I don't think I can do it. I've tried before. I can't do it. You can do anything by the power of God. If God before you, who can be against you? Ain't no devil in hell can make you a carnal tear. You can do what you choose to do. Raise your hand. Join these that are responding all over this building. I see this hand. 
Others. See that hand in the back? Others. See these hands? Others. Don't let the devil psych you out and say, oh, you're just being a hypocrite. Tell the devil, I've been a hypocrite. I'm tired of being a hypocrite. I'm going to live for Christ. Raise your hand. Who else? All over this building. I want every one of you that raised your hand, I want you right this moment to get up out of your seat and come to this altar right now. I don't want anybody else moving. I want these who raised your hands to come to this altar right now. If you were not saved, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, but you know you want to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit's convicted you, raise your hand right where you're seated. You've never been saved. You've never been born again. You're not a terror, but God's good gospel seed has gotten down inside of you, and you want to get saved. Raise your hand all over this building. These are still coming. I don't want anybody else moving until these are all down. Everyone who's responded to this call. If you're not saved or you're a terror, I want you to come right now. Everyone who's going to come, I want you to come. Do it right now. I don't care if you're old. I don't care if you're 80 years old. If you're a tear, God can turn you back to wheat. Just get down to this altar. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless. God bless.